Welcome to Governmental Astrology. I'm Linda Rowe. Today is the 9th of May, 2020. And today I'm going to take a deep dive into the Constitution of the United States once again. In the days since I recorded my last deep dive into the Constitution, I have come to realize several things. For one, I've seen that I have a belief system and that this belief system has grown up and around and through my understanding of the Constitution. And so I spent the last week or so examining my beliefs, and I'm, I'm coming to realize some new information about our Constitution. And first, I want to tell you about my beliefs. I believed that we, the people of the United States, were at least partially interpreting the Constitution correctly. I believed that lawyers were knowledgeable on important ideas surrounding our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence. And I'm coming to see that I was wrong about that. Um, we're, we're really not interpreting the Constitution at all correctly, and lawyers who should be knowledgeable on important ideas are not always, it seems to me. Um, I also think we don't need to leave it to the lawyers. It's something that we people, we the people need to be learning how to do is um, interpreting the Constitution. So before we even get into the Constitution, I'd like to speak a little bit on the subject of freedom because that's really what we think that we have a Constitution for. Um, like most Americans, um, I've always heard quite a bit about freedom, but I've given it very little thought. Well, up to a point, I gave it very little thought. Um, and my definition um, used to be um, that freedom looked like a society that was very much like the society of the United States. I believed when I was younger that the United States was a free society. And as a Jew, I have participated in countless seders uh, where we spend the evening talking about freedom. And even then, I, I don't get a good, I never got a good idea about what freedom was. And I never really realized that anything was wrong until I took a graduate class on the Seder. And I took a graduate class on the Seder because I was required to have a master's degree in order uh, to pursue chaplaincy, a master's degree in religion. And so I began my studies at Spurtis College in Chicago, Illinois. And the class that I'm talking about, the class on the Seder, it was a required class. And we used to go to uh, Chicago and take the classes. Um, this is the second time that I'd ever gone to Spurtis. I think that um, this class on the Seder was probably my fifth class that I'd taken at Spurtis. And the man teaching the class, um, he was an older Orthodox man. He had a, a big black coat on that was much too big for him. And he liked to talk. And he was adamant that Americans' beliefs on freedom were incorrect. They were skewed. They were twisted. They were turned. 
And he said that Americans had no idea about freedom. I remember sitting in that classroom and I remember thinking, this guy is something else. Um, but then I started writing my paper for the class and we had to take a, um, well, we could pick any Haggadah that we wanted to, uh, American Haggadah, and we were going to compare it to uh, one of the original Haggadahs in Judaism, um, which, of course, the most original Haggadah is the, hilariously enough, the um, Maxwell House Haggadah. Uh, it's, it's one of the oldest ones, the Maxwell House. Everything else is newer than that, pretty much. So we had to compare the two, and in comparing the two that we were looking at, um, this idea of freedom, and... I could not believe it, but there is the word belief. Um, I found that my relationship to everything was transforming as I was writing about this concept of freedom and the way that Jews related to freedom through the Seder. Um, my relationship to Judaism changed, my relationship to Passover, and I would have to say most pleasantly, my relationship to the teacher, Byron Sherwin of Blessed Memory. Um, I, my relationship with him was, was transformed as well. And I'll speak more of my relationship with Byron Sherwin at some point in the future. But right now, um, I'll tell you that after having struggled with the concept of freedom for the six months it took me to write my paper for the class, that I understood that freedom is not something you can declare it's not something that you can live in. There's no place of freedom. There's no land of freedom. And to think that there is, that's a mistake. Uh, freedom is more of a relationship. It's a process. For Jews, they, they have an understanding that you get to freedom through a very narrow passageway. And um, in some ways, the way that you reach freedom is through an opening that you're squeezed through for Jews. And it's a good image uh, to keep in your mind. Um, in other ways, it's a treacherous crossing, sort of like walking out, well, onto a cliff face, really. Um, you can reach freedom, but it's more of an endpoint. You can't really do anything with freedom. It's not something that you can hold on to. Freedom is more of an agreement. It's more a way of life. And I would even go so far as to say it's a lifestyle. Uh, freedom is sort of, it's, it's, um, it's, it's sort of a balancing act between captivity on one side and death on the other. Um, the cliff face. So you're, you're looking out onto death, but behind you is captivity. And you have to leap out into death. Um, there's no safety in freedom. And yet, without freedom, an individual is not truly alive. And freedom is not something that an individual can be. Freedom is for the group. And an individual's relationship to freedom is through the group, because life is with the group. If you're cut off from the group, you experience death. And you can experience captivity as well. Um, 
and that is indeed what captivity is. It's, it's um, being cut off in some way. In many ways, when you enter into captivity, death has already occurred, or rather, it's inevitable. And captivity is just something that slows down the death process until the death process is imperceptible. Captivity is an agreement you make with something else. Captivity is a parachute, and it makes you feel safe. If you're a country, you can gain freedom through constant engagement. And after reaching the initial uh, moment of freedom, the country must continue asking itself, who amongst us is not free? And then you can spend time liberating the group that's not free. And that's the way that the country remains, standing on its own two feet. The framers of the Constitution, they looked at freedom in a completely different way than the way I just described it. The framers of the Constitution considered the king to live freely, and they looked at the people as the ones who lived in captivity. And looking at the king as the one who was free, we can begin to understand how the framers understood freedom. The, the framers thought that freedom, because it was the king that was free, the, the king could make his own decisions. So being able to make your own decisions, that's freedom. The king could own property. So being able to own property, that's freedom. The king had a special relationship with God. So having a special relationship with God, that's freedom. And the king could do whatever he wanted to. And so for the framers, being able to do whatever you want to is freedom. And looking at all of the things that a king can do, the one that bothered them, the, the colonists the most was the fact that the king could do whatever he wanted. And if the king needed money, well, he could collect that tax from the U.S. colonists if he wanted to. And the colonists saw the demand for taxes to be an overreach, sort of like your ability to do anything you want to ends where you're about to smack me in the face. But if we look at, at this disagreement between the colonists and the British, if we look at it for a moment from the British side, how are the British viewing this demand for taxes that they were putting on to the colonists? And at one level, um, I, I imagine that the response of the British must have been, well, we can do whatever we want to because they could. And at another level, the Brits must have been thinking that they're the ones that know how to run a country because the colonists certainly didn't. Colonists are just out there being colonists, they're not running a country. So what do they know of, being, of who should be taxed and not? The colonists were not just out there running a colony. They were actually dependent on Britain. And in being dependent on Britain, the colonists, at least to some extent, lost their voice. Um, at least in their own mind, the colonists lost their, their voice. Um, The colonists saw themselves as being in an odd spot. They were living on their own, mostly, but they had no voice in how they were governed. So you can see this gap that's 
starting to form where the Brits are saying, we have the right to tax you. And the colonists are saying, no, you don't. Um, and at least for the, the colonists, this, this idea of dependency is extremely important in not being free. Um, if you are dependent for the colonists, you don't have a voice in what's going on. Dependency is really a state of captivity. Um, and quite often we try to make somebody be dependent on us. We're trying to put people into a state of captivity without even realizing it. But in this case with the, with the um, colonists, they really saw those two as linked. Once you're dependent on somebody else, um, it's hard to get your feet underneath you and to balance again on your own. You have to really work hard. You can't hold on to that lifeline and stand on your own two feet at the same moment. And anybody who has learned to skate by holding onto the walls knows, knows this. It's much easier to balance if you even have just one finger on the wall. Being out there all by yourself is much more difficult when you're skating and the re results can be much more catastrophic if you fall. But if you're ever going to learn to skate, you have to learn to fall. And so the process of arriving at the balancing point of freedom is the process of cutting the cords of dependency. Moving away from dependency into self-sufficiency is an important part of the process of becoming free. It's a large part of the word liberation. To liberate someone or to be liberated is to be released from the bonds that tie. It's to take your hands off the wall. We can see dependency all around in today's society. We're all dependent on our jobs. We need a job to access food, housing, transportation, and healthcare. And I made this statement once and a sole proprietor took issue with my words. Uh, he said that he didn't have a job, that he owned a business. And I'd have to say, if you're working for yourself in my book, you're working for a living. It's a job. It's a job and you're your own boss. If you want to, you can consider yourself to be an owner if you're a sole proprietor, but then really what you're saying is you own yourself. Um, if you're a sole proprietor, you're actually going to have to decide whose side you're on. Are you on the side of the owner or are you on the side of the worker? Because you're going to have to decide the owner is the one putting everyone into dependency and the worker is the one who's dependent. And it's the worker who's trying to become free in today's society. Um, and some of us are dependent on more than one job, and we still can't make enough money to live. All of us are dependent on this supply chain that we didn't know we were dependent on. Uh, we're dependent on the supply chain for toilet paper, flour, meat, and we're watching the supply chain fall apart to one extent or another. If we were free, instead of accessing the supply chain, we could access the food chain, 
it's just very important to realize that sometimes the food chain fails too. And the food chain actually fails for many of the same reasons that our supply chain is failing. And so we'll look at that at some point in the future. And so while all of this is going on, we're trying to be individuals, at least in the United States. We're trying to separate from the group and to not be dependent on the group. But we don't really understand the difference between being dependent and belonging. And more importantly, we don't know the difference between being dependent and being owned. And we have this very strange idea that um, we own people when, we, when they're dependent on us, that it's an actual ownership deal. And this is a very old idea, and it's mistaken. Um, in today's society, we make someone dependent on us and then we're in charge. And that really means that we can do anything we want to because we own them. But there's very little truth in that, actually. Um, so being dependent, being an owner, being in charge, these are not anything that is going to be on the pathway to freedom. And the problem is that we're holding on to this lifeline um, it's the lifeline of dependency, and this is all of us. While we're holding on to this lifeline, all we can see is death. That's all that's around us. And if we let go, we're going to die, or at least this is how we feel. And that's because we were standing on the cliff, and death was in front of us, and we turned around and made a, a bargain. Um and we grabbed onto something that was a lifeline. And so that's why we still have to experience this death in order to get to freedom. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty important part of what's going to go on. And from where we're standing, we don't actually know if what we're going to experience is actually death or just falling. But we have to let go in order to find this out. And... That's why we have to learn how to fall. And so I want to go into the Constitution and how we can look at this in terms of uh, freedom and dependency and falling um, and death as well. I want to take a look at two constitutional cases that are becoming important right now. Um, one is before the Supreme Court. They've already argued it. Um, it's the Little Sisters of the Poor, and they don't want to pay birth control for their employees. It's the second time that they're going up to the uh, Supreme Court. And then the second issue I'd, take a look, I'd like to take a look at is the group that's claiming that it's unconstitutional to be forced to stay at home. Um, and at some point, I want to look at the astrological chart of the U.S. Constitution and compare it to the Supreme Court battle with the Little Sisters and Hobby Lobby. And um, I'm not going to have time to do that today because there's too many issues that I have to describe first. But that's coming up because today, May 9th, is the 60th uh, anniversary of birth control. That's why I want to do that. So...
I'll do the May 9th chart when I look at this. Um, I want to know what the little sisters are trying to accomplish in their going before the Supreme Court. And I also want to know what the, the demonstrators are trying to accomplish with their stay-at-home, uh, with their stance that's against the stay-at-home orders. Um, and I want to look at what's happening from the viewpoint of the protesters and of the Little Sisters as well, just to see what's going on. First, what I want to look at is what these two have in common. The Little Sisters of the Poor, um, what, what do they have in common with the, uh, with the protesters that are out there with their guns and their anti-Semitic signs? Uh, from what I can tell, the word essential is a word that is causing trouble in both of these instances. It's a word that causes trouble in the far right and the authoritarians amongst us. This word essential, it comes into play both in the birth control fight um, and in the stay-at-home orders. Um, for the birth control, essential comes into play with a list of essential services that companies must pay for when they are paying their employees insurance coverage. And one of the essential services is maternity and newborn care. Um, and then they, uh, the court system made some businesses exempt from having to pay this type of coverage uh, when they're providing benefits to employees. And the, benef the businesses that were exempt were religiously affiliated organizations. Um, and then some states had similar legislation on their books. So um, it was the states that Hobby Lobby and the Little Sisters went after um, when they were trying to be considered exempt from supplying their employees with funds to purchase birth control. Um, they, they wanted to be considered inside the religiously affiliated organization, and they weren't. They were outside of that classification. And so the, the, the state's rights are extremely important here, and the word essential is also important. Um, if we look at the current protesters, um, this list of essential businesses is, is really getting their goat. They're, they're very unhappy by this list of essential businesses. Um, and the protesters are saying that everyone considers their job to be essential. And they're also saying that no one can determine whether someone else's job is essential. And so the protesters are going after states individually to attack the stay-at-home orders. And... All of this is oddly happening on the 60th anniversary or around the 60th anniversary of birth control. Um, birth control, we're going to look at how it, it formed and all of that in a different um, episode. But when it came out, it essentially separated pregnancy from sex. And it gave women unprecedented control over their own bodies. In essence, birth control did as much as anything to level the playing field. 
in many ways, it wiped out inequality in one fell swoop, at least in terms of pregnancy, which is a pretty big act of um, equality coming in that one little package. Um, and there is more involved in this than just what I'm explaining. And I say that because uh, the definition of life is rolled up in this, um, is in the definition of life is rolled up into the birth control issue. The definition of life has to do with a beating heart. Today we're missing ventilators during the pandemic. Um, the ventilators took away the definition of life from breathing to a beating heart. And those two are connected in that way. We'll go into the history of, of um, well, it's sort of the history of ethics, but really how ventilators uh, help change the definition of life. It's all, it's so interesting how all of this is right here today going on. Um, ventilators also have a, an issue or a, a, a finger in the pot with essential, during, especially during a pandemic, because as we've seen, not all people have equal access to ventilators uh, during this pandemic. But these are all issues that I can't cover in one episode. And so I'm, I'm just going to stick with the Supreme Court hearing and the birth control access issue and with the current protests against the stay-at-home orders. So I want to look at the issue of essential first. Essential is a word that means absolutely necessary. Anything that is not necessary can be cut off or removed. And so if you're not essential, you can be cut off. Um, in the world of the authoritarian, anything that's not essential is not valued. And therefore, you can ignore it. Um, it's not, you don't have to pay to attention to something or someone who's not essential, who's not necessary. And we're taught this in our society. We're taught in our society to pay attention to what's essential. To pay attention to something is to value it. And this is what we're taught to do in this society. We pay attention to those things that we value. And so it's not odd that the word essential is popping up in both of these um, really constitutional battles. Because the protesters are saying that it's unconstitutional to require people to stay at home. But what ends up happening, if you're a member of a group that's not essential, that's not important, then people have the ability to ignore you. Um, and we saw this when the colonists were petitioning the king. It's, it's sort of the same issue, um, this essential argument. When it was between the colonists and the king, it was described a little bit differently. When the colonists were petitioning the king, they were asking to be heard. Colonists were asking to be recognized. 
But Britain couldn't recognize the colonists because there was no classification scheme to put them into. The colonists were asking for something that could not be granted. No one in Britain knew how to grant the request of the colonists. The colonists were asking for recognition. The Britain couldn't recognize the colonists. They didn't know what they were looking at. They knew the colonists were not running a country and they knew that the colonists were exactly as represented as any British citizen through a system of indirect representation. And so they didn't understand you're exactly like all of the other British citizens. What are you asking for? Now, if we take this issue of personhood, because that's really what they're asking for on a collective level, the colonists wanted some way of receiving recognition of being a colony. And the only way that they could get recognition was to become a country. And that's exactly what's happening on a smaller level. We have individuals who are petitioning the government through the constitution. They're asking to be heard and our system cannot hear them unless they have this thing that we call personhood. Personhood in the United States, uh, at least constitutionally speaking, is an act of recognition. It's a ticket, sort of. It's the golden ticket. It's the password. It's the key. Once you have personhood, you can get the U.S. Constitution to recognize you. And more importantly, the U.S. courts are forced into recognizing you and protecting your rights if you have personhood. Without personhood, you can talk, but you can't be heard. In essence, you're being taxed with no representation. Citizens, us, people living in the United States, we mistake personhood with voting rights. And we say that the vote is our voice. And it is to an extent, but we give votes to many people who are not considered persons in front of the Constitution. And so in a way, if you have a vote, you have a voice, but you have no microphone. You have no way to, to fit into the system. So um, all that the Constitution can hear are tiny little squeaks. But if you have personhood, you have the cord, you have the string, so to speak, and you can plug into the system. And what's an, once an entity with personhood plugs into the system, the system has been pre-wired to hear that entity. And the entity gets results. Those individuals in our country who have not yet gained personhood status are essentially speaking in tiny little squeaks, and we don't even realize it. Who are the entities without personhood? Women, for sure, of all shapes and sizes. Anybody who's female, no personhood. Black males have a three-fifths personhood. As far as I can see, um, the personhood issue was never dealt with, and they still are considered to be three-fifths of a person. 
and anyone who's not white, as far as I can see, because uh, they always in in the three in the what is it called the three fifths agreement or whatever, um, they list off and anyone else along with the black males, and so we have everyone else who's not white, and the Native Americans are their own classification in that. Um, well, they're often in the Constitution, they're being excluded, Native Americans. They don't have personhood. And children, uh, we do not allow personhood for any children. Uh, children are, in fact, so dependent that they must find someone else to speak for them in front of the Constitution. Um, and so when you look at our society, nearly everybody is not granted personhood status, and we don't even realize it. Um, the other thing we need to realize is if you're not a person before the Constitution, what you really are is a possession. That's how it works. Um, the entities with personhood can do anything they want to with you. And so uh, we come to the birth, the issue of birth control and Really, we come to it in the, the part of the American Health Care Act, which was um, President Obama's attempt at bringing health care uh, access to everyone. Um, and we call it Obamacare, but really we should probably call it Republican care because it was, they uh, pretty much cut it up and uh, to tiny little pieces and changed it so much that... Um, it doesn't really wreck, it doesn't resemble anything that uh, President Obama would have originally been trying to get passed through. Um, and we certainly have been trying to get health care access to people before President Obama. Um, we have a, a list of people that have tried um, to offer health care to all citizens. But for some reason, and we'll go into this at some point, um, offering health care to everyone is terrifying for many, if not most, people living in the U.S. And it's so terrifying that everyone would be able to access health care that most people will not even consider it. Hillary Clinton entered the public sphere shortly after Bill Clinton became president, and Hillary wanted healthcare for all. And I remember, oh my goodness, people hated Hillary for that act. I remember my mom started talking about how much she hated Hillary. And I don't think my mom ever stopped talking about how much she hated Hillary uh, up quite up until she died. I think Hillary was a, a thorn in my mom's side. And it was because uh, she was trying to get this healthcare system passed. Um, I don't think Hillary realized how difficult it was going to be to get Americans to agree that healthcare and access to healthcare is a human right. And I have to say, I don't remember Bernie Sanders sticking up for Hillary at all. I don't remember anyone sticking up for Hillary back then. And she was taken down by the masses. And I got to watch it all front and center because I was watching my mom. And it was a pretty amazing feat to see how angry Hillary could make, particularly women like my mom, angry. 
And here's the thing, we are so set on an insurance as a way to allow people to access the healthcare system. But insurance is a system of betting. And remember what I said about betting in the last episode of this podcast, um, betting on an unlimited system, an unlimited energy, that is pure profit. And it's actually profit in the exponential system. It's not profit in the linear system where most of us live. Uh, we have to get away from offering insurance. There's, we just have to. There's uh, no way out of this. But getting out of medical care, getting betting out of medical care, that's a different episode. So we're going to continue on the way. Today, I'm talking about personhood. I'm talking about recognition. Um, I don't think I'm going to get to states' rights today. We'll, we'll keep on with that. Um, it is part of the story. It's just, it's such a big story to tell. Um so today, just personhood. As it stands, we have white males with personhood. We have black males with three-fifths personhood. And um, that is more than half personhood. And I think that that's why the system tries to put black men in prison, uh, because it's a way of removing that little bit of personhood that they have. And so we have white males, and we have corporations, and we have embryos and fetuses that have personhood in our system in front of the constitution it's absolutely astonishing that a corporation and an embryo or a fetus have a better time getting the constitution to listen to them than an actual group of human beings it's absolutely astonishing to me and i didn't believe it earlier i knew it but i wouldn't quite look at it and I didn't believe it. But not believing in something is its own form of belief. And that is what I've been looking at this past week. I've been distancing myself from the belief that I held. I let my belief go. And it's been floating away from me all week. And I say, good riddance. This legal definition of personhood has nothing to do with reality. It has everything to do with belief, at least as far as we have it right now. And uh, I'm going to tell you how. <clears throat> um, the far-right religious groups will tell you that abortion stops a beating heart. They're relating uh, birth control to abortion. And abortion stops a beating heart. That's why they say they're against it. Uh, one day when I was working in the hospital, there was a code overhead. And the code said, code white. In my hospital system, code white means that a woman who is giving birth is bleeding out uh, during a code. There are certain medical personnel who must run and help. And so the, the operator will announce where the code white is happening so the people know where to run. And <clears throat> I have been both the chaplain who runs and helps out during a code white, and I've also been a chaplain who was not assigned to help out. Some other chaplain was assigned to run to the Code White. So during this particular day, I was not assigned to run to the Code White and help out the family or support the husband. Um, so I just continued on visiting people and walking around the hospital. That, and that day, uh, the Code White day, everybody that I saw, all the employees, all the nurses, 
the secretaries, the, the techs, everyone stopped and asked me how that woman was doing, the code white woman. Um, it, it seemed that day that there wasn't an employee anywhere in the hospital who wasn't lending all of their available prayers, vibes, and energy to that woman. There wasn't an employee anywhere in the hospital that day who wasn't holding their breath. Life stopped that day for the employees in the hospital. Everybody was asking me because they knew that one of us, one of my close colleagues, one of the chaplains, was helping out, and they were thinking that I might have some inside information as to what was going on. But I didn't have any information, and so I just watched everyone reacting to that code blue. I mean, code white. We normally have code blues. Um, the energy, energy surrounding the death of a woman during childbirth is much different. It's much stronger and much sadder than the death of a fetus or a premature baby. It just is. That's just the way it is. Um, people are sad when they hear about the death of a fetus or a, the death of a premature baby. Um, and I'm talking collectively, but the death of a woman during childbirth is, is extremely painful. And the death of a full-term baby is also extremely painful to the group. I'm not speaking about personally because um, individually when it's your baby, it doesn't matter how old the baby was, it, it's devastating to lose a baby at any point along the pregnancy line. So I'm not talking individually. I'm talking about group, the group grief. There is something different about losing a mother during childbirth. And so for a mother to not have personhood, it's very strange. Um, it's, it's, it's wrong. Um, we each, each of us, each of us knows that the core of our being, that other people are people. We know this. Um, I'm, I just, I'm not sure that we know that our constitution considers women and babies to not be people. I'm not sure that our constitution considers people of color to not be people, Indians to not be people, black males to only be a little more than half of a person. This is inconceivable. I don't think we quite understand this. And yet it's not the constitution that bears the responsibility for this misinterpretation. It is our parasitic system of power that has allowed and indeed created a system where a corporation can make a constitutional petition against a woman and the corporation will win. This is a parasitic system. And that's what happened with Hobby Lobby and the Little Sisters of the Poor. And in fact, the Little Sisters of the Poor are women. And so uh, it was women against women in this uh, battle against not paying for birth control. But the Little Sisters of the Poor were attached to a corporation, and so they had personhood through that corporation, and it's pretty amazing. 
Um, and so now neither Hobby Lobby nor Little Sisters of the Poor nor countless other nominally religious or uh, other organizations that are more than nominally religious, now none of them are offering comprehensive coverage to their employees. And why? Is it because it's immoral to use birth control? Uh, when I read the court documents, the court documents state, they make a statement about the moral objection. Uh, however, it's about one sentence that they make uh, a moral description of the problem of birth control. And they give lots of sentences about talking about the financial impact of having to off offer birth control to women. The financial price that has been set um, it's actually an amount of worth that has been given for the entities without personhood. I mean, it's just, it's real estate in the, um, in the transcript. Uh, one sentence to the moral problem and 10 sentences given to how much it's going to cost the corporations. Uh, that tells you how valuable money is versus the idea of being a person. Um, it's also interesting because if you're a person, then you have the ability to own property. And it is true that legally, if you're a woman, you can own property, but you'll, you're going to stand a greater and greater chance of losing your case the further up into the court hierarchy you go, the further up in the court system you go, the more you are going to need a constitutional definition of personhood, of personhood to protect you. And this is what's happening with the people protesting the stay-at-home orders. We have white men and corporations um, that they're saying are going to financially die the protesters are saying that the white men and corporations are going to die on the vine, so, so to speak. And <clears throat> this is unacceptable to them uh, because they're placing a financial value to the corporations and to the financial life of the men. Uh, and they're putting that financial price over the actual life and death status of the human beings who potentially could die from this uh, virus. Um, they are making a financial argument and they are putting their finances above human life, but they can't see it because they're not recognizing anything but constitutional personhood. It's, it's something that they're recognizing and they don't even realize it. <laughs> and so I would say, that this stay-at-home time that we've been living through, it's the first time that I've ever seen us put human life above financial concerns. I, it, the, the extreme significance of that cannot be understated, uh, or overstated, I should say. It, it can be understated, but it cannot be overstated. Um, I, and I can see that there are many, many people who are dying on the vine. Uh, they've put everything on the line for the stay-at-home time. They've lost their businesses. They've lost their jobs. 
what they've lost is truly significant. And I'd like to recognize those people as heroes too. We spend all of our time talking about the heroes at the hospital and the police officers and the fire people and the people working in the supermarkets and the box stores. And we don't spend even one second talking about what the people who've lost their jobs and their businesses, what they've lost. Um, I would say everyone who has put themselves on the line financially also needs to be recognized. Um, we need to be looking at these people. How do we get everyone back on their feet? How do we move forward, all of us together? We don't want to leave anyone behind with some people making money and other people not working at all. Uh, we need to support each other as we begin trying to put our public life back together, whenever that's going to be. Um, I don't know if it's this summer, if it's next year, I don't know exactly when it's going to be, but all of us need to do it together. Um, when one of us is in great big trouble, we're all in great big trouble. And that's the reality of the situation. So we need to look at everybody, see what contribution everyone has made towards this and recognize it and move forward together as one people. That's our future. Um, I'm going to leave it here for today. I'm going to have to do another episode. I want to look at the birth control chart, the charts of the Supreme Court decisions. Um, I'd like to look at states' rights, power. Um, and interestingly enough, the conservative idea that liberals are expanding the government without limit. I think that's an extremely interesting uh, viewpoint that the conservatives have about the liberals, um, that they're expanding government without limit. We need to look at that. Um, the, the right also sees that the left is creating dependency when they should be instead creating self-sufficiency. And I'd like to look at that too. But this idea of personhood is first. Um, it's absolutely essential to the idea of dependency. And so you simply cannot talk about dependency until you talk about who is seen as a person by the Constitution. Uh, if you're never recognized as a person, you have to be dependent on the system. It's the way it's the way the energy works. It's it's impossible not to be. All right. Uh, if you need to call me, my number is seven two zero six zero eight zero three zero nine, and my email address is governmentalastrology at gmail.com. As always, I'm glad you're here. <laughs>